0: Thank you, Dave. Uh, and thank you, Dave and Colleen, for the hospitality this weekend. Uh, to Car- Karen and, and David Skivington, who have really embraced us. We've been here since Friday um, and have spent time with your community on Friday night and on Saturday. Uh, it's been really wonderful. It's been great for me uh, to just reconnect with uh, Fountain Vineyard. Uh, over all these years. Um, I've known Colleen for coming on 20 years and we've said shared journey with both Living Waters and now with Journey South Africa and so it's been really lovely to be part of this community for this weekend again. As you know, my name is Craig. I'm on staff with Journey South Africa. I have with me Cindy, who is also on staff, and she'll be sharing a little bit as well um, some of the message this morning. And we have with us Carol Ann, uh, and she's gonna be sharing a little bit of, of her story in between our message over the next half an hour or so. Uh, You may hear, for those of you who were here on Friday, uh, you heard some of Cindy's story, and she never got to speak the end of it, so you'll hear a little bit of the end of her story as well as she shares. Um, Maybe just enough so that you've got some context for me in terms of the fact that we're sharing different stories, Uh, Journey South Africa uh, uh, helps church communities like yours to provide safe place for Christians to come and share their struggles around their own shame and their fear, the pain that they've had in their lives, and to really find uh, the truth of how much God through Jesus meets them there, but how he does that in community. Um, but that, that that takes a safe place of community, and so we help church make that a safe place. That's the work that Karen does very much in your church, and so we're working alongside her to grow those those communities. And that's been part of what we've been doing this weekend. I got involved because I come from a background of struggle with same-sex attraction, uh, and that's why I ended up connecting with Journey South Africa. And then over the years, really have found my own connection in communities that have really loved me there, and really in that place helped me to find the truth of how much God, God in his love for me through Jesus and his body, really transformed my life, and helped me to see that my identity is established in Christ and not in struggle. And, and have been able to live beyond those struggles, even though at times they're still part of my life experience, but they don't define me anymore. And so today, what we want to talk about is extending the message that we've been speaking um, over Friday, Saturday, to really help us as a church community realize that we're, we're meant to be ones who receive people who are struggling, but we can't really receive people who are struggling if we are not aware that we need to be true, honest with our own struggles. Um, and so we want to talk a little bit about what Jesus says about this um, in his, um, in his uh, story of the prodigal son shared in Luke 15. It's a well-known story, um, but we want to look at the two groups of people that he's speaking to in that, in that story, because he's speaking to two groups of people who are actually part of the same community. He's speaking to the Jews of the time, but he's got um, Pharisees and Sadducees who are there listening to his story, but they're kind of like standing on the sideline, Um, and he's got, as the scriptures refer to it, the tax collectors and the sinners, Uh, and um, they're kind of differentiated. It's almost like the tax collectors are the worst of the worst, and then there's also the sinners, but they're all part of the same community, and yet they're separate groups, and you know the story well, I'm pretty sure, that as Jesus starts to engage with them, um, the, the Luke uh, chapter 1, Luke chapter 15 verse 1 says, um, Jesus is speaking to the tax collectors and the sinners. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law are standing on the side muttering, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So maybe your church isn't like the Pharisees and the tax collectors. I hope my church isn't. Um, I think I try not to associate myself with the Pharisees and uh, with the Pharisees and the and the and the lawmakers. Sorry, I said I think I said the tax collectors. I meant the lawmakers. But but in effect, actually, there's a part of me that can never escape that. Um, I was thinking about 20 years ago, plus when I really started to deal with my own issues. Um, I was in a church community that all looked the same, dressed the same, spoke the same. Um, and it was easy on some level to belong to them as long as I dressed the same, looked the same, spoke the same. Um, and yet what that actually did was leave me feeling like I couldn't really, 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 really actually belong because of all of these things that I've just mentioned in brief I was struggling with. And so I had to find help outside of my church, but part of my journey was to come back into my church community and risk being known by the way, some people left my church when I started to share my own story because it was like, well, how, do you, how dare you bring homosexuals into the church? And maybe we become a little bit more sophisticated and progressive in our language around things like that these days. But I think in many ways, church community still is formed around kind of we're drawn to people who look, speak, and believe, and act the same as we do. And it makes us feel safe. But no one really knows what's going on in our lives. So I wonder how many of the the Pharisees were allowing the other Pharisees to really know what was going on in their lives. But they all kind of belonged because they preached the law and they spoke the law and they they represented the law in the way that they spoke and dressed. And so they belonged and all the rest of them, the tax collectors and the sinners, were just a bunch of motley people who didn't really look like much and kind of couldn't, didn't have enough sophistication and, and facility to hide their brokenness and so it was just out there. And so they didn't really belong. No one really knows what's going on in my life because I do sometimes feel like I so belong. Um, And what was perhaps most important for me in the past in my life, and maybe oftentimes as we're in our church communities, is what we look like and how we behave. But this doesn't sound like a gift from God, but I think it is a gift from God. (laughs) That in today's world, we're facing issues that are coming into our church communities and particularly around struggle with sex and gender, but not just that, that are starting to upend this false sense of peace that we live in. Um, With others wanting to come into our church communities and even belong in our communities who don't dress, don't believe and don't behave the same that we do. That's a real struggle for us as it was for the Pharisees. Some of us arrive believing that God has given us freedom to find love however we want. And we really believe that that's our God-given right. Some of us come in with our girlfriend or our boyfriend that we've been living with for years and perhaps even with the children that we have in that relationship, but we're not married. Some of us come with a partner of the same sex. Some of us come believing that we are not even the sex that we were born as, even presenting ourselves as the opposite sex. Some of us come having had ourselves surgically changed and, don't, and doing all that we can to eradicate our genetic sex because that's how much of a disparity there is in us. And now all of a sudden, maybe you're not experiencing that in your community, right? Maybe you're kind of like really determined to keep that outside and maybe the people that are coming in in these struggles are kind of hiding it and coming in subversively Maybe there's some of us that are sitting here have been part of this community for years who are part of that category making sure that they really are looking like they belong still. But here's the thing. Now the community that felt so happy and safe because it was made up of people who dress, behave, and believe the same as we do is threatened, and we are faced now with how to respond. And so how will we respond? Will we respond like the Pharisees? And the lawmakers who said, look at this man, he, you know, eats and drinks with sinners. Or will we identify with the ones who Jesus eats and drinks with and actually find that there's community there? So that's what we want to talk about briefly today, right? As I said in Luke 15, Jesus is talking to these two groups of people. And if you know Luke 15, you know that Jesus starts with actually talking about two other parables. He tells two other parables first. He tells the parable of the lost sheep and the parable of the lost coin. And the parable of the lost sheep and the lost coin both kind of say the same message that, look, there are those that are actually safe and saved. They're in God's house, but the ones that are lost, he goes out. He's not worried about the ones that are safe or think that they are safe. He's going out searching for the ones that are lost and he goes and he gets them and he brings them back home. And I'm pretty sure, yes, amen, right? But I'm pretty sure that the Pharisees are thinking, yes, I hope that these tax collectors and sinners are listening to the story. Um, Good, finally, Jesus is speaking something that kind of connects with our own hearts. These people need to realize that he's seeking them to bring them back into the house. But he's setting them up because then he speaks about the story of the prodigal. Well, it's not actually, I think that that's a bad title. It's a story of the Father's heart. This, all these stories are, are a story of the Father's heart, right? And it's a story about how actually there's not one group of lost people that Jesus is that the Father is actually seeking to help them to see that they are his sons and his daughters. That what he does in this, in this last story is he says, "Don't you see that actually the ones that are safe at home are just as much, very often as lost." as the one who went out and tried to find his identity on his own. And just as lost because they believe that the reason why they belong is that they're entitled to belong because look at how much they eat, drink, and look, uh, sorry, they look, behave, and act the same as everyone else. So I'm not gonna read the whole story right now. We're gonna, we're gonna read out parts of it. But the story of the prodigal let me just say this, starts with Jesus saying that there was a man who had two sons and the younger one said to his father, father, give me a share of the estate. Now, hold on to this. I want my portion of the estate and I want it now. And so Jesus says that the father divides his property amongst the two sons. Remember that the older son later on is going to come and say, I didn't get anything. But he gets his inheritance at that stage, the same as the, the, un, the younger son, right? So don't forget that. And so here we see that the starts in the story about this younger son who, getting what he, what he thought he deserves, goes out and he squanders his wealth in wild wild living. Um, he spends everything he has. And then when he reaches the end of all of that and a famine comes along, he's lost his sense of self because he's lost all of his wealth and all the things that he thought that he had the right to claim in terms of his identity. He goes and he hires himself out to someone who is looking for someone to look after his pigs. And I don't quite know how he hired himself out because he's not being paid anything. He has to eat the the pig's food in order to survive. And he gets to that point in the story where in absolute destitution, he now is confronted with, who am I? He thought he was this one, who had the right to go and be whoever he wanted to be, to claim his identity. He had tried living that way, and all he had lived ended up with was emptiness and nothing. And so now he contemplates his state, and he thinks, well, I doesn't think I'm a son, let me go back and say, Father, your son's back. Can he have his position in the household? He doesn't believe he's a son anymore because he's gone and he's lived this way of life, right? And he's gone and lived this way of life because he's believed that he has the right to claim his identity as his own. And so the consequence of having claimed it and lost it means if I've lost my identity because of my own choices, how do I ever come back from that? It's gone. And so the only way back into his father's household in his own mind is to try to cry out to his father that he would allow him to come back and be a servant. And so he thinks, I'll go back to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. In honest confession, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like like one of your hired servants. And so off he goes. He goes back. His father sees him. His father, in compassion for him, runs towards him and grabs hold of him right? And then you see how before he even is able to start to say his speech that he's rehearsed probably a thousand times for the last weeks and weeks and weeks of his life, the father doesn't even give him time to speak. He just turns to his servant. Isn't that interesting? I need to come and be a servant. He turns to the servant and says, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate for the son of mine who was dead is alive again. He is lost and is found. But that's not the end of the story, right? Um, we don't really, and we're going to come back to this in a moment, see what the younger son actually chooses. But he's presented with a whole lot of choices. We're going to look at that in a moment. Um, we kind of get a sense that, the, that a party is happening because la- a little bit, further on in the the narration of the story, we see that um, the older son turns to another servant and says, what's happening there? What's going on here? Why is there a party? Um, And he says, your younger brother, who was lost, is now found. He came back, and so your father is celebrating. And then you see what happens for for, for the brother. He is resentful he is angry he feels like something has been done as a disservice this son doesn't deserve all of this reward because look at what he chose and look at what he's lost and so now um, he feels the resentment and the anger of that and right at the end of the story you see that the father now comes to the older son and says but why are you angry why are you not coming to join this party and this is the message to the Pharisees, right? You're always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Like, don't miss this. Both men were looking for identity. The one in the church and the one outside of the church is looking for identity. Me in this community is desperate for identity as much as the person outside seeking for it. There are so many who long to be connected with Jesus, but they don't know how to because they believe that their um, choice of identity separates them from community in God. And there's so many of us who are in church believing that the only reason we belong is because we conform to what we think is the right identity. And then when someone gets something like welcome into community or wants to come in, We feel like the only way that they can is that they actually um, behave, believe, and then they can belong. But as long as they behave first the way that they're supposed to, and as long as they speak the beliefs that we want, then they can. But actually underneath that, that that determination that they need to conform to what we look like and what we believe, is a desperate seeking for ourselves of identity because it makes us feel safe. It makes us feel secure. And so you see this played out. One of the family is outside and the other one is inside. And in the end, one is controlled by shame and unworthiness and has to learn to deal with that by self-condemnation. But the other one is controlled by resentment, entitlement, and judgment. In giving one son the choice to come back, the father exposes the other son's lostness and his presence and presents him with a choice to come back to. How many of us have considered that being in church actually potentially isn't home yet, even though we're living in that home? How many of us actually realize that God is still calling us to actually face our hearts and still come home? So we are going to unpack this quickly <laughs> in three parts. One Do you see that all of us are constantly trying to claim an identity and a reward by living our own way? And that even in trying to live in a church community in a certain way, oftentimes we're trying to claim an identity that's not one that the Father gives us through Jesus. And then we wonder why we feel like we don't get our reward. That only when we're prepared to, number two, lose our identity... And sometimes that's forced upon us. And hit rock bottom and face having to come back home, are we, number three, able to receive our true identity and our reward? And what is that? Returning home. Coming into being ones who are actually received by our fathers. And that actually what God does, what the father does in the story of the prodigal, does not put. he does not put conditions on entering back into his home. In fact, he confronts us with the conditions that we want to put there. So as you listen, here are three questions or choices that Jesus poses to the two groups. Actually, I think to us today. Which son am I? Men and women, which son are we? Can I see that the Father pursues me as a lost son too? And will I choose to enter into his celebration of my return? So, Cindy. Is it in here? Is it, is it Caroline? No.
1: Okay. So, um, verse 11 to 13, Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So the father divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had and settled for a distant country, and there he squandered his wealth in wild, wild living. And so the father gave up all he had for his children. He's got nothing left of his own property. Neither son realized his identity was held by the father and being defined by him. Both, both as Craig has said, attached to a different identity. One based on his inheritance and his own lusts and desires. The other one based on his performance and his good behavior. The younger son believed that life was all about claiming his own identity, seeking out and creating his own happiness. He was a, like a self-made man. He would go outside of his community and his father's house to satisfy his hunger or create create his own version of life. And if you think so many, and I'm sorry to diss Disney, but so many of the latest Disney movies are about how these Children have to leave their families and go and do this wonderful adventure. They can't be fully themselves in their own families. A very subtle and subversive little message being thrown in. And so, having a father to the to the, the what's it the wild living son meant that he could claim property to get what he wanted out of life. And so, his sonship was very much based on stuff, the the, the materialism. Of being a son. And so um, he received what he believed he was entitled to and he went out, he lived the way he wanted, but that meant that once the stuff, the money, the property was done with, what happened to his sense of identity? Because it was all based on getting the stuff, right? Um, His choice cut him off from receiving anything more from the father because it was just a transactional relationship. He could only enjoy the ill-begotten results of sonship by spending his inheritance. But once he spent it, there was nothing more to receive or enjoy. In his mind, he stopped being a son because he had no inheritance left. And so some of us, we can easily, like I used to do, look with some disdain on the younger son. But think about how often we use the gifts that God has given us, our inheritance from him, to build our own kingdom and to make our own happiness. And then we can see how much of the younger son is in us. Um, And for most of us, we live looking like the older sons on the outside, especially when we're at church, while we subversively live like the younger son on the inside. We're like the Pharisees, whitewashed tombs. And so, in many ways, I was like the older brother. Like, once I committed my life to God, I seriously committed my life to God and I didn't swear, I didn't sleep around because no one would want to sleep with me anyway, but that's beside the point. I was terrified of men, so even if they were interested, I would literally exit on another door to what they came in. And I legit did that with one of my really close friends. Now, when he would walk in the room one way, I would leave the other way. Um, But on the inside, I was really living like the younger son. I was so wrapped up in how despicable my body was, how I had to kind of get it thin to be acceptable, that I, I really idolized my body because in my body, in my thinness was my hope. In my thinness, I believed would lie my happiness, not in God. And so on the one hand, I was serving God, while on the other hand, I was living like a complete prodigal son. Um, and I rejected who he'd made me to be, finding my identity somewhere else. And so if we look at the results of the older son's choice, the older brother declared to the father that he got nothing, whereas the father had given him everything he had. Where where the father says, all I have is yours, it was literally like, I've given you everything that I didn't give to the younger son. And so we think we're righteous because we're not looking for reward from God, but we're behaving well because we think that will earn us our worth and our value with God or maybe the the affirmation of the people around us. We think because we are living deprived lives, we are better than those squandering their stuff and their lives. Look at how we look at others in terms of gender issues because we think we're more holy or more righteous than them. Look at how we judge our brothers and sisters in church when they struggle, when they sin, or when they're praying and out pops a swear word, right? And we're like, what the heck? Because we're so righteous in ourselves, we think that we're beyond those things. And so a lot of the older brother's crisis comes from trying to find his needs met in secret. While on the outside, he's looking like the perfect devoted son. And so you can see just how bitter and resentful he gets. Um, feel, feeling unnoticed, like he's passed over, he, he gets taken for granted, he doesn't get seen by his father. And so we don't recognize how how sinful we older brothers are because we're so filled with self-loathing. Carol Ann is going to share some of her story.
2: So I was the ultimate um, older brother. And I started my marriage as an insecure woman needing constant affirmation, a good girl of note. We were married about two years when things started not looking that good. My husband would have terrible outbursts of anger and I learned very quickly to walk on eggshells. After about four years, the affair started. Initially, it was an emotional affair where I found out he was sending flowers to women at work, but later on it became full-blown affairs. I think they were 14 in all. What confused me is that he would have a batch of affairs and truly repent and be fine for a couple years and then have another batch. Over time, they became worse and his anger and hatred towards me became overwhelming. After one set of affairs, he admitted that he had planned my murder. He had bought chloroform, a a motorbike helmet to disguise himself and a gun on the black market. I still actually don't have words for this. Very few people knew the extreme amount of pain that I was in. I became so good at covering for him and covering for me, protecting him and wearing numerous masks. I was a shell of who I was, constantly adapting to what he needed, which was never enough. It is shocking in retrospect, how much abuse I allowed and how cruel he became. There was such a need in me to look perfect, and to fix my marriage. I tried endlessly. Eventually after advice from a counselor, I warned him that if he ever had another affair, things would be over and he would be out. I never dreamed he would do it again, but he did. And I kept the boundary and I told him to leave. Leaving me with four daughters, aged seven and five and twins of two. My life had ended in my eyes. He lost all our money, created half a million rands credit card debt. My world crashed completely. I felt so exposed, such an extreme uh, failure. It felt like everyone knew, from my hairdresser to people overseas who would message me about what was going on. The pain of losing my soulmate left me in a fetal coil for months and months. I could not sleep. I could not eat. I kept trying to get my husband back. Can you believe it? And he told me he was having such fun. And here I was dying inside. We went for counseling. Can you believe it? (laughs) The counselors were so mean to me. (laughs) It was crazy. And even asked if I knew Jesus. They exposed our lives to our community. And all this time, my husband sat and watched me being abused and allowing them to abuse me. I really didn't know anybody could feel so much pain. Yet, I continued trying to get things to work. And in bits, the sheriff of the court looking for him, banks calling almost every day, having to have an AIDS test, his girlfriend's calling me and abusing me on the phone. At one stage, he even got a male prostitute to phone me, to proposition me. I felt I had even I had been dragged into the underworld, and I could no longer breathe. My masks weren't falling off, they were being ripped off. Tune in later for part two.
1: Verse 14 to 19. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. It's interesting that only at that stage does he begin to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. Shock and horror for a Jewish boy. Think of how easy it is or how easily we create our own identities. The party animal, the generous one, the happy one, the emo one. And so he had created his own identity. And so I need money to sustain my identity. Think what you need to sustain your identity and to keep your friends. Or what you believe you need to do to keep your friends. Um, Just... Then the famine comes, and you can see how much the famine in his soul matches the famine famine all around him. He had lost all his inheritance, and so he had lost all his friends and the life he was building. He realized he had no real relationships when he was the one in need. There was no one there to actually give him anything. He was therefore only ever going to come to his senses once he couldn't maintain his lifestyle anymore, And so his identity and his self-created life crashed. And it was interesting. I was chatting with someone the other day, and he said, I don't know how far I have to go to reach rock bottom. And I said to him, regardless of whether I'm in the pigsty or in the fields in my father's house, I hit rock bottom when my heart is disconnected from my father's. Right? Um, He had to realize the life he had chosen could never satisfy his deepest hungers. And so you can see how selfish his choice still is. I'm hungry, I'll go back to my father's house because at least I can get a roof over my head and a plate of food. He's completely still motivated by his own hunger, right? I don't even know if we can say he was repentant at this point or just hungry and poverty stricken. And so turning back still was not an awareness of his father's heart for him. He was going to go back just to be a servant so he could at least have some way to eat and somewhere to, oh, some something to eat and some way to sleep. And he was still believing his inheritance was just financial rather than a relational thing that is held by the father. If he hadn't acted like a son, he didn't have the inheritance of a son, so he wasn't a son anymore. He left his father's house so sure and entitled, so sure of himself and entitled, and now all he could come back was with rags, poverty-stricken, and full of shame, and still missing how much his father would miss him because of the relationship. And so, how many of us recognize this level of dest- destitution in our own hearts, and so come to him because we've run out of options? And so, for me, my coming to my senses was when my body started crashing and I started getting scared. Um, Not because I could even see that what I was doing was sin, but because I was like, oh my word, okay, something's going wrong. Um, I went and I went to the doctor and all of that, and I was told either you go on chronic medication or you change your diet. So I changed my diet. Um, And so really through that process, I had to start engaging with, actually, this is the temple of God. It's not an idol. It's a dwelling place for God. I had to start dealing with things like putting on weight, which left me feeling even more despicable than I normally felt. Um, and seeing how I was actually trying to punish my body because of shame. Starving my heart because I didn't believe I was worthy of love. Starving my stomach because I didn't believe I was worthy of love. And I was letting, yeah, letting my hope lie in, in me, not in God. It was something I was doing completely separate from him. Um, Carol Ann.
2: As I said, those masks were coming down at a rate. It was terrifying, but at the same time, a great relief. Those around me started to see the pain that I was in. I swore so much. It just seemed a safe way to express my anger. By the masks being removed, I started to see the abuse for what it was and I began to expose it. I stopped excusing the behavior. It felt like I could see again and because I could see, I could, see, I could say no. I allowed my trusted friends to walk with me and give me wise counsel. I started responding to the bad behavior and not reacting. I was, I was realizing I could have boundaries. And Jesus walked the journey with me. I have no doubt about that. Um, I have such a deep love and respect for the Holy Spirit who comforted me in those places nobody could reach. I learned to remove the spiritual veneer, my huge presumption that if I performed in some way, like praying excessively or fasting, then Jesus would definitely fix me and fix him and all, all would be well. It was extremely painful to have that carpet pulled out from under me, and I was not in control. But it got me out of bondage and brought me to a new place of freedom and deep love for God, love for myself and love around me. The Lord showed me Isaiah 50, 11. Look, all of you who kindle a fire, who encircle themselves with with sparks, walk in the light of your fire, and in the sparks you have kindled this you shall have from my hand, you shall lie down in torment. I realized I was so busy throwing all my energy into fixing the problem, it had become idolatrous. My focus had to change. I needed to look to Jesus and submit to and trust the process. Um, This brought me to freedom and a deep relationship with him. It didn't fix my marriage, but if I had time, I would tell you all the miracles I have seen in the adventures I've had with Jesus since since those broken, days. those broken days. You would see redemption. You would see restoration. You would see laughter. Just so much joy and peace and grace. What an incredible God and Savior we have. He saved me from the gutter, literally, and brought beauty from ashes. Not a place of perfection. Definitely not. But a place where I have freely forgiven my ex-husband, his girlfriends, the counselors. And my cry to Jesus during the darkest of my days was that he would not, me- not leave me bitter. And he hasn't. And that, to me, is the greatest miracle of all.
0: Can I take ten more minutes? Isn't it interesting how each of our stories are stories of Pharisees living prodigal lives? Um, and how, and maybe you didn't pick up on this, maybe I'm being too nuanced, each each of us uh, attempted to come and find belonging in community, but were received at times by Pharisees. I got told things like... Um, you not reading the scriptures enough, Craig. You need to go and read all the scriptures against homosexuality. Um, I judged myself on that for years. Um, can you imagine if it was the older son who had seen the younger son coming back and he was the first one to meet him? What do you think he would have said? And where do you think the younger son would have gone? And yet... We're all potentially older sons, with younger sons constantly coming in, and like we keep on saying, we're all trying to be older sons when actually we're younger sons desperately, desperately wanting to know that we belong. And so, when the younger son comes in, the father's response—thankfully, it's the father's response—is profound. As much in his silence about the sin as it is in his proclamation of sonship to the servants present. Now, where is Craig going in these last five minutes? This sounds like he's going to justify sin, right? But no. We want to, like the older brothers, put the sin in front. That's what the older brother did. How can you let him back in? Look at what he's done. And so actually inadvertently, well maybe not so inadvertently, directly saying his identity is attached to his choices. He should be judged for that. But what the father does for the younger son is he now for the first time is presented in having to realize the choice he has to make regarding what? Inheritance and identity. It was his belief about inheritance and identity that dictated his choices in the first place. And now he's faced with that. What? What is the choice that he's faced with? Servants, throw a party. Now he's got to choose to enter a party or not. That seems so innocuous, right, in light of all of this. But really? He's now got a face going into a context where probably most of the people there were going with resentment to throw a party, because the father had said so, that they're just being good boys and good girls in obeying that, and actually throwing a party for this guy that they actually don't think deserves it, because they feel like they're all losing out. But they're going to throw a party. He's got to choose to go in as a servant or as a son. He's got to make that choice. Can I tell you, and this is my speculation based on my own shame and experience in this? Do I choose to go and actually stand there with all these people that I think actually feel ashamed of me and maybe look like they're more ashamed of my choices than I am? Does he go immediately into that party or does he go and clean up all the pig mess first? But the father didn't even respond to the pig mess, he just put the the cloak of identity on him. What does he choose? Does he celebrate with the others or does he stay in the darkest corner of the room and wait? You see, that choice that he's faced with in going into the party is a choice that actually confronts him with how much shame defines him. Like, I can't, I, I can get that to some degree. There have been moments in my life where I feel like the I just begin to see what that woman caught in adultery must have been feeling like in being dragged out into the town square, that naked and ashamed. And here in this story that Jesus tells, that's in in essence what he's having to face. Will he go and actually stand there? And choose what? Well, my father has said, this is who I am. Everything about me, everything about my history, everything about my choices, and everything oftentimes about the people around me in that party is actually claiming otherwise. Well, I choose to be there. Do you see how important it is that that community actually realized their own shame and the power of the shame to define them so that they could actually embrace him with celebration like the father did? What would the consequence be if he didn't choose the party as a son immediately? He would have stayed locked in his shame and hopelessness. What? Hoping for scraps from the tables, like the Syrophoenician woman. Never really believing that he had the right to fully claim all of the truth of who he is in God. So he would have probably become, maybe, just constantly be a servant, in the hope that he was noticed for that when no one was... God was not waiting. The father wasn't waiting for him to be a servant to love him. And then he would have felt resentful. Doesn't that sound like the older son? After months or years of trying to now earn his way back and feeling like he's not being noticed. And therefore then maybe just become a secret prodigal again. Or maybe just give up because somehow this faith is pathetic and useless and doesn't make any change. And so what? Why why bother? Because I feel like I'm getting nothing of love. And yet out there in the world, I had a taste for a moment of it. He would have always been defining himself by his past and what he believes he has become. And either leaving in despair or looking for someone or something else to comfort him. Or trying to spend the rest of his life making up for it and and becoming an older son. And perhaps years later, becoming angry identifying with others as unworthy, etc. So the son needs to realize that being away from his father's presence is poverty in all ways. That's what he's faced with. Being in his presence is life, abundance, needs being met, even though he has to deny some of his own desires, self-determination, wanderlust, sexual appetite, the opinion of others in his community. And then finally, This one is the most convicting for me in the story. This part, this final part. Because even after having to walk through my own prodigal son journeys, I still feel like there's so much of the older brother in me. We see the older brother, even in choosing to stay, still makes it about himself and his right to claim, in this case, to earn and to deserve through what? Being a servant. As a result, he doesn't find his father's presence. Instead, he finds poverty, resentment towards the father for embracing and restoring the other son, self-righteousness, Pharisaism, victimhood. How many of us don't even realize that we're doing that, right? And yet we know of others in our lives who are struggling with their own sinfulness. And our immediate response is to try to get to tell them in all of our goodness and belief that this is righteous. That they're doing something wrong rather than come here, belong here because here's what you will find, you're longing for. We're so hoping that if we can preach to them strongly enough that their sins are wrong, that they will change their behavior. And then what? Just become like us? But we're as empty as they are. How many of us want younger sons to receive just desserts for their choices rather than be embraced? How many of us want God to make younger sons look like us or conform in order to belong? How many of us are afraid to celebrate their return out of fear that we are being seen as approving of their choices? How many of us are afraid that we won't be seen for our years of service and loyalty and duty and consistency and therefore angry because the sinners are seen and celebrated? But what would the father's response have been if the younger son had come saying he was a different gender? Would that have changed the father's response in Jesus' story? What happens if if the son had come choosing to dress and live as a different gender? And still come back home. What happens if he had come having his body surgically altered and looking like a different gender? What would the father have done? I hope you're not going to leave saying I'm justifying the son's choice. I hope you're getting that what I'm saying is he was desperately claiming an identity, but coming home meant that he faced having to choose that identity. But maybe some of the choices that he had made meant that he would always live with that choice that he had made before, and that would never change. But would he still belong? Would he still be welcomed and loved because the Father sees him as more than just his choices? And will I participate with the community and love to make him welcome? See, most of us as older brothers are that we are never able to make a place for younger brothers if we can't see the judgment and entitlement in our hearts, if we can't realize that we are looking for identity through works and piousness and that that's just as broken, if sometimes hiding our own sexual brokenness, um, if we're hiding our own brokenness, even our sexual brokenness, behind religion and condemnation, and if we can't see that we're wanting people to change in order to belong, In both cases, I wish that we could have gotten more of the story, but maybe it would have lost its power. I probably would have. In both cases, the father seeks his sons out. The father pursues the older son as much as he does the younger one. He goes looking for him. And in his very presence, his very presence with the older son presents the son with a choice what? Come into the party. go into the party and be celebrated as a son but that means you have to be exposed for your self righteousness or your shame the only way to go in is with honesty shame self righteousness in order to be loved i either i'm going to choose to behave and believe in order to belong or I'm going to learn that the Father welcomes me in to belonging, and therefore then grows my belief, and I become. We don't really know in the story what either of their choices were. But what will yours be? Let me pray. Father, I really pray that in this moment if you see fit, that you would, Holy Spirit, connect our minds and our hearts to the things that we're wrestling with, with the many questions in our own personal lives, the things that we feel hurt by, angry in, shameful around, those parts of us that perhaps feel like, Father, we never really know the truth that you're calling us into a place of being seen and belonging, and our experiences maybe even speak to the fact that it's not possible to belong in those parts of our hearts and lives and histories that feel so shameful. But Father, for some of us, we feel like we are so desperately wanting to be seen in the hurt that, is, that we've experienced and the things that have been wronged against us. Father, we legitimately feel angry about the choices that have been done against us, or angry about the choices that others are making that feel like we're being rejected in their choices. And I pray, Father, that you would give us courage in all of this to not hide behind, trying to cover it up: shame, fear, anger. Not try to pretend that everything is okay because we're so afraid that we want we, we don't belong. I pray, Lord. Father God, that you would show us just how empty and alone we feel in those emotions, in those choices, in those parts of our histories. And in that, Father, I ask that we'd have the courage to start to speak it out to you. I pray even now that you would bring to mind for us people who we know in this community are safe for us to go and be known around those parts of our lives that we're wrestling in, where we're either... Hiding behind a Pharisee or hiding in a dark corner because we believe that we're a prodigal. And that we're at risk actually going and speaking out the stuff that's going on in our hearts and our minds. And that you, Father God, through Jesus, would help us to experience, maybe for the first time in our lives, what it is to be met there, to be comforted, to be loved, to be heard, and to be declared again by your voice that we are your children. In Jesus' name,
3: amen. Thanks, Craig. Thank you. Sure, thank you so much, Craig, Caroline, Cindy, thank you for what you shared. Why don't we stand together? Thanks for praying for us too, Craig, as you have. And uh, I just feel like we good to do some more personalized praying as well around um, two areas if we can if we can just pray for those who are struggling with belonging um, you've lived in dangerous places desperate places and you've come here and you might feel somewhat of a stranger not sure if your welcome is is authentic and uh, you really want to have a sense of being welcomed by the father um, and the belonging is a is a cry of your heart we'd love to take some time to pray with you. But I also want to pray with those amongst us who feel like uh, entitled to judgment, the older brother amongst us, where we, we feel like it's not right that this church should be polluted with people like you. You know? And uh, a sense of entitlement because you're, you're a hard worker, you've served. God wants to do a fresh thing. And if we get this right, Port Elizabeth won't be the same. P.E. won't be the same. Heaven will invade this piece of earth and people will know there's a safe place to engage with the Father for new life, new hope, transformation. And like you were sharing your story, Caroline, God comes in and He turns that around. So I want us to pray for, for the mix of that today. If, you, if, you're, if you're fresh amongst us or you're fresh in the season of your journey and you just, there's, there's a, a woundedness in your belonging, you say, Lord, could I really be accepted? Could I really be celebrated? Could I really come home? Just while Dick, uh, Declan plays for us here and we just listen to the Lord, I want to invite you to come for prayer. I'm not some of the leaders and intercessors and you guys too, come and join us. Just praying for people. And if you want to turn away from any level of judgment, there may be a particular person or a family member over whom you've uh, expressed judgment and you've been an older brother towards him, and you want to turn your back on that, you want to turn away from that and ask God to give you a heart of grace, a heart of acceptance. So while we just wait anyone, I invite you to come forward as well. We'd love to pray for a transformation that we could carry the heart of what Jesus preached for in, in Luke 15. Eh? So come, Holy Spirit, would you just come? lead us to respond in ways that would be transformative, not just for ourselves but for a city of longing people people longing to know the Father so don't be shy, just make your way, like that younger brother at a risk it, come home even no matter what he encounters along the way, just come forward we'd love to pray with you this morning no matter what your journey has been, with you coming as a a younger or the older coming for belonging or coming to lay aside judgment and you want to renounce the criticism, or critical spirit you had towards other people. Uh, we've, as a church, we've had some churches that have considered us overboard with grace uh, and we might retaliate and see them as the older brother churches. May God help us. May God help us in the city to carry a better legacy of the, the power of the gospel that changes lives. And we all know, I know people who really need to know the power of God's grace. I pray constantly, Lord, help me. Help me to carry that into their lives. Church, others who are not coming to be prayed for, why don't you come and pray for these that are coming forward. Just come and join us right now. Just press through it. Just take some time before the throne of grace and pray for people. And just have a, just a, a, a mini interview. What do you need prayer for? And, and then just bind with them Let's if maybe two or three people coming for each one that's come forward for prayer. If you want prayer, I invite you just to stand forward and put your hands out in front of you as an act of receiving. Um, that way we also know who wants prayer and who can give it. So come church, come and pray. Would you come and join us? Come to receive prayer or come to give it? Let's not hold back about that. Sometimes holding back in our passivity is in itself a, a destructive thing because people feel the church doesn't care. They just watch. So can I encourage you just not to be passive. Either come to be prayed for or come to pray. But let's engage. Let's allow the Lord to work through us and change lives. And remember, this is not for ourselves alone. This is for our city, for our nation, for a hurting world. If we get this right, many, many would be helped. Many, many people would find hope and healing. So Lord, we thank you for what you're doing in this place this morning. Thank you, Lord. Anyone else needs prayer, feel free to come forward. The coffee shop is open. you welcome. Those who like to gravitate that way can go and enjoy a cup of coffee. There's a free coffee in the lounge as well. And forget the lost property. And uh, find something here or else it goes on to the Generosity Month tables. Eh? All right. God bless you guys. Thanks for coming. Again, Craig and Cindy, thank you again. Hey, eh? appreciate you guys. Eh?